Welcome to uh, Labor Day Eve, or whatever we call this. Isn't it great that we have tomorrow off? Students don't have to go to school, right? That's awesome. Sleep in or whatever. Um, it's kind of interesting because, I don't know if you noticed, because the um, pros have not started their games, pro or the NFL, uh, there's some college games today. I don't know if you noticed that. And there's even one like tomorrow night, you know, like Monday night football. It's like the American public cannot possibly stand a weekend without Monday night football. So, so it's there for you if you, if you desperately need it. Well, I want to say uh, thanks to so many who were a part of this five-week series on spiritual warfare. We are finishing that up uh, right now, this morning. And we actually started working on it and praying about it and meeting about it back in June. And so there's a lot of folks who have prayed. Intercessors typically do not like to be named, so I will not name them. Uh, they know who they are. God knows especially who they are. But there have been people who have been praying uh, every week, uh, people praying actually during these services, interceding for all of you, people that you probably will never know were doing that. Uh, and so God bless them all. And I want to uh, also thank the preaching team, uh, we started out with, uh, let's see, Joe, the joyful preacher Dylan, uh, three weeks ago. And um, the, uh, I was going to call him the godfather, but that might have bad <laughs> connotations for some of you of Sicilian background or something. But, um, and then we uh, had Steve with a pastor's heart. Harris came in ministering to us uh, two weeks ago. And then last week we had Scott, bad news for the devil, Angelo. I mean, did you enjoy that last week? I mean, that was incredible. You know, that was incredible. Worth watching uh, a number of times. And by the way, there's still more uh, to come with that if you have interest uh, in learning more about spiritual warfare. Um, what I want to do is do a quick rewind here and actually have us look at a number of statements that would, I think, summarize what has happened to, so far over the first four weeks of this series. And the statements are going to be up on the screen. Is there actually a screen behind me? Oh, yeah, there they are. Good. Uh, is my head in the way? No, okay. Uh, and what I'd like you to do is to recite these out loud with me, if you would be so kind. That way I don't feel so alone. It'll help you to remember and get you involved a little bit. So let's go ahead and do that. Just follow my lead, the first one. We are all in a spiritual battle, whether we realize it or not. In this case, ignorance is not bliss. Real harm can come to us and our loved ones if we are not prepared for battle. Okay, second, we have an unseen enemy who seeks to tempt us to sin and trap us in it. He also seeks to distract, deceive, discourage, and even destroy us. He wants to diminish the impact of the church and defame the name of Jesus. And you're all wondering, how many D words can you come up with, Rich? Um, the next one, the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated and disarmed our spiritual enemies by his death on the cross and resurrection. Though that defeat is complete, it is not yet finalized. There are daily battles we must learn to fight and win. Our only protection is in Christ. Let's hear you say it. Living by faith in him and knowing our true identity, position, authority, power, and freedom in Christ are essential for waging and winning spiritual war. Two more. 
through confession of sin and turning away from all lies and evil, we take back ground the enemy has previously held in our lives. Our victory begins with having clean hands and a pure heart. And that was really what um, Scott was talking about last week. And then finally, God has also given us his armor so we can stand firm and resist the enemy's attacks. Now, you know, I may be wrong, but I, I just sense that there's been a bit of a buzz the last four weeks. People talking about this. Uh, people excited about it. Uh, you know, discussions. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe God is doing some stirring of our hearts, uh, shaking a little bit of a comfortable spiritual status quo. Uh, if that's happening with you, don't shut it off uh, once this series is over. Say, Lord, continue whatever you're doing in my heart. Uh, statement here, I, I, I think it's true. Uh, I believe there is a yearning in the souls of many for something more, something more real, something more relevant, maybe even more revolutionary. And we had 35 people go through a process of personal cleansing and renewal called the Steps to Freedom in Christ. That was eight days ago. Some of them have emailed me back and are talking about breakthroughs that God is doing in their lives. It's exciting. And uh, if you're beginning to see some changes in your life, things that maybe you thought were so, uh, so stuck in you, maybe beginning to see a few things dislodged and some freedom coming, um, keep praying about it. And if you have questions and you want to talk more, please see us. We're here to help you with that. I, I want to encourage you with a short testimony of someone who went through the steps to freedom in Christ, and this is what this person wrote. I have been set free, praise the Lord. Yesterday, for the first time in years, the voices talking about in the head, I could hear the silence. The voices stopped. When we sang, I could hear myself sing. For the first 14 years of my life, I lived with an oppressive, abusive mother who never said I love you or put her arms around me when I cried. I received no affection, no kind words, no affirmations, no sense of who I was, only physical and emotional abuse. At age 15, I was subjected for three weeks to a indoctrination from a cult, she wrote. It really screwed up my mind. Uh, the year which followed was pure hell. My mother threw me out, so I went to live with another family, and they eventually threw me out. But three years later, I found Christ. My decision to trust Christ was largely based on my fear of Satan and the power of evil that I had experienced in my life. Even though I knew Satan had lost his ownership of me, I was unaware of how vulnerable I still was to his deception and control. For the first two years of my Christian life, I was in bondage to a sin that I didn't even know was a sin. And once I realized it was, I confessed to God, received his forgiveness. I thought I was finally free of Satan's attempts to control me. I didn't realize the battle had only begun. I suffered from unexplainable rashes, hives, and welts all over my body. By the way, that's not uncommon. Someone under spiritual attack, unusual, unexplained physical symptoms can happen. Uh, I lost my joy and closeness to the Lord. I could no longer sing or quote scripture. I turned to food as my comfort and security and the enemy attacked my sense of right and wrong, and I became involved in immorality in my search for identity and love. But all that ended yesterday. 
when I renounce Satan's control in my life. I have found the freedom and protection which comes from knowing I am loved. I'm not on a high. I'm writing with a clear mind, a clean spirit, and a calm hand. Even my previous bondage to food seems suddenly foreign to me. I never realized that a Christian could be so vulnerable to Satan's control. I was deceived, but now I am free. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Amen. I think sometimes we just need to know that we're not doomed to stay in the same place we've been. There's real hope for change. And we have seen in our ministry, the ministry I was involved with for 27 years, Freedom in Christ Ministry, thousands and thousands and thousands of people set free to walk in newness of life. That's what Christ has set us free for. I hope you've received maybe a little additional hope in your life these weeks, and uh, we'll continue in that, that realm in a moment. I wanted to uh, read to you Psalm 40, the first three verses out of the New Living and uh, just feel free to follow along. It's a beautiful testimony, really. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Let's pray together, if you would. Father, as we conclude this series, you alone know what you've been doing in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. Keep it up, Lord. Keep it up. Continue your work, Lord. Continue causing our hearts to be wide open. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes, as the song said. Lord, and we pray even this morning that you would stir our hearts with maybe a new direction in our life, a new sense of purpose, a new commitment to the cause of Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. Lord, would you do that, please? For the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, so what's next? Where do we go from here? now that we are finishing up this series, I want to talk briefly about three ways in which the kingdom of God, the church of God, powerfully marches forward. So how do we expand the kingdom of God? How does it grow? How do we move past just sort of defending ourselves spiritually, you know, trying to make sure that I'm not succumbing to enemy attack? And that's important, you know, uh, and we want to help you Put on the full armor of God so you can do that. But once you're sort of beginning to win that battle, is there, are there things we can do to move out to expand the kingdom uh, so that many more come to know the love of our Lord Jesus? I think so. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 6, uh, verses 18 to 20, that give us some insights, I think, into this area. So the scripture's on the, on the screen. Read it silently as I read it out loud. And, and pray in the Spirit. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So let's look, first of all, at the powerful weapon of prayer. Paul talks about that. Uh, have you ever thought of prayer as being a weapon? It absolutely is, and a mighty one at that. Uh, and perhaps you could say the most powerful weapon we have um, as believers in Christ. You know, I'm fascinated to realize that there's only one thing that the disciples of Jesus are recorded in Scripture as having asked Jesus to teach them. He didn't ask them to teach them how to teach or to preach or to do miracles or uh, all those things. He said, Lord, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. That was the thing that was primarily on their mind. Lord Jesus, we want to learn from you how to pray. I think it was probably because they observed in Jesus' life, prayer was his lifeline to the Father. It was, I mean, he would often go away by himself to pray. They would see him uh, uh, praying and uh, observe him and heard his prayers. And so they asked the Lord to teach them how to pray. Now, Paul said that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, that's really referring to the energy and power of God's Holy Spirit who lives inside of every believer to be directed, to be uh, led by, to be empowered by, uh, the Spirit of God. And we're to pray all kinds of prayers on all different occasions for all God's people. There's a lot of alls in that passage. And so I, I kind of took a moment and sort of inspired by Peter Wagner uh, from years ago, um, some of the different ways that people pray, different kinds of prayers. So they'll be up on the screen for you. First of all, there are what we call list prayers. List prayers are, if there's like a a list that the, the church sends out online or whatever of pray for this and this and this and this and this. List prayers are on that like a bloodhound. I mean, they, they love to go after that and they'll pray diligently and detailed and intimately for those things. Uh, and they're wonderful. I mean, you've got a number of things to go. Find a list prayer and they will be uh, powerfully faithful in praying. There's also visionary prayers uh, visionary prayers are those who um, see not just what is, but what could be. Uh, and, and they're usually people with a gift of faith. Uh, and they, they see what God wants to do in their midst. And they're praying, beseeching God to bring us to uh, the completion and fulfillment of the things that he wants done. There's also worship prayers. Worship prayers will you know, put on some of their best, uh, most favorite worship songs and be worshiping the Lord. And as they're doing that, they're interceding and praying. The worship of God moves them to intercessory prayer. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. As are warfare prayers. If you ever been around a warfare prayer, it's someone who knows about the spiritual battle and they know how en the enemy is trying to obstruct the kingdom of God. And they just come against it uh, in the name of Jesus. They're warfare prayers. Uh, there's also those who are called to pray for revival in the church. They're not uh, satisfied with the spiritual status quo. They're calling on God to bring a movement of confession, repentance, and brokenness so that people would turn back to the Lord. Now, Psalm 85, O Lord, will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? 
Uh, also, those who are particularly moved to pray for the salvation of the lost. They, uh, they really have a heart to see people come to know Jesus. Maybe they have the gift of evangelist or whatever, and they're really uh, hungering for that to happen. Uh, there are others who have a particular calling to pray, pray, maybe for children or for the youth in the church or youth in the area, uh, uh, maybe for pastors in the area, that sort of thing. Uh, as you can see, there's all kinds of different types of prayers. There's even those that are called upon by God to pray in times of crisis and emergency. Oftentimes, they're woken up in the middle of the night because something's going on, and they may not even know fully what it is, but they might call the person, I, you know, I was moved at 3 o'clock in the morning to pray for you uh, during the night. What was going on? And they'll find out that maybe somebody had to go to the hospital or they were under spiritual attack or something. God has those kind of intercessors uh, as well. Uh, and then there are those who are eager to pray for healing and the mercy of God. These are tender-hearted people, often with a gift of mercy, who will be praying in that way. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, connection between how people pray and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they have, and they're manifested uh, in their prayer lives. Uh, I want to share an example, to me the most astounding example that I can think of of, of prayer. Um, and it's the illustration of a little town in Germany called Herrnhut. Can you say that with me? Herrnhut. Good. You're good German speaker people. We'll have some strudel in the, in the, in the lobby afterwards. Herrnhut. It means, by the way, the Lord's protection or the Lord's watchful care. And you'll see a picture of a guy, uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Um, he was a Moravian minister, um, and he welcomed a group of religious refugees, really what they were, from Moravia up into the Saxony part of Germany back in 1722. They were, they were fleeing the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church, and many Protestants were being uh, martyred during that time. Um, and, and so they came up to this little town, uh, you'll see it up there, called Herrnhut. That's what it looks like now. It's a very small place, just a little bit bigger than Weaverville. Uh, and uh, it was about two miles w away from where Zinzendorf resided. And so they built this, uh, this little community. And for the next uh, five years, the community grew to about 220 people, including 87 children. Well, they had a mixture of brethren and Baptists and Lutherans and some other uh, isms and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like good Christians, they didn't get along. For five years, they squabbled and quarreled and fought. Finally, Count Zinzendorf had it, these people. So he went and preached a series of sermons on unity in the spirit, and things began to change there. Uh, first, what happened was an official, as often people are, they made an official document called the Brotherly Agreement, where they agreed to get along. <laughs> Good luck. You know, if the heart isn't changed, that's not going to work very well, and it didn't. But in July and August of that year, 1727, prayer meetings started springing up in this community. Believers started to cry out to God for a fresh movement of the Spirit. I remember J. Edwin Orr said something along the lines of, when God's wanting to do something new, he sets his people to praying. And he does. When there's organic prayer that begins to spring up, and people say, hey, let's get together and start praying for the church, or let's get together and start praying for Asheville and stuff. God does that. God initiates that when he's wanting to do something new. And he was doing it with these people. 
Uh, and fascinating to me, on August 6th of 1727, an 11-year-old girl by the name of Suzanne Kunel had an encounter with the Lord after praying for three days. Now, think about your 11-year-old or 11-year-old grandchild or whatever. Wouldn't that be cool to see someone at that age? And so she shared her story with her friends, and they started joining her in prayer. Here's an account of what happened during that time from the pastor of that little congregation. It says, while Pastor Rutte was holding the meeting at Hernhut, he felt himself overwhelmed by a wonderful and irresistible power of the Lord. And he sank down into the dust before God, and with him sank down the whole assembled congregation. In this frame of mind, they continued till midnight, engaged in prayers and singing, weeping, and supplication. Now, um, a week later, on August 13th, uh, Zinzendorf was preaching, and as the congregation was about to take communion, the Holy Spirit just came down on their midst. It was so powerful a visitation, it came to be known as the Moravian Pentecost. Fascinating. 20 miles away, there were two guys that were part of that community that also had the Holy Spirit come upon them uh, simultaneously. And they didn't get a text from the other guys saying, hey, this is what happened. It just happened because God did it. Now, here's where things really get interesting. Between August 13th and 26th, um, this powerful movement of prayer began, really started with the children of that congregation. In fact, it says here, the spirit of prayer and supplication at that time poured out upon the children so powerful and efficacious that it is impossible to give an adequate description of it in words. Now, these are the children praying. The adults are also starting to get in there with praying. And so Count uh, Zinzendorf saw in Scripture in the Old Testament that the fire must never go out on the altar. That's the Scripture that he looked at. And so, with starting with 24 men and 24 women, they started uh, chopping up the day in one-hour pieces. And for one hour a day, all these people would pray uh, and then more people joined them, so there was a rotation of people who were praying and not praying, including a children's rotation. And during that time, that birth to prayer movement that lasted 100 years. I feel like saying, let's rise for the benediction and go home. I mean, you think about that for a moment, will you? 100 Years. During that 100-year period of time, by the way, the people of Hernhut never was above a population of 300 people in that little community. In the first 25 years of prayer, they sent out 100 missionaries to the world. You can see a, a map of that there, some of the places they went, North America, South America, Asia, other parts of Europe. Actually, they accomplished more out of that little prayer movement in Herrenhut than the church had accomplished in two centuries before that. There are also a couple of Brits you may have heard of that were influenced by this prayer movement, guys by the name of John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church, also George Whitfield and some others. 
This prayer movement started in 1727, in the 1730s and 1740s in Europe and America was birthed what was called the First Great Awakening, a movement of awakening and revival that swept Europe and, the, and North America as well. Uh, and some people say even influenced the birth of our own nation a number of years later. All because of a small group, maybe about the size of New Life Community Church, who went to prayer on their knees. Well, we got a few things that we can connect you with here in terms of prayer. Uh, we have a prayer meeting, by the way, in the green room, which is like uh, right back in that corner. Go through those doors at 6 o'clock on Thursday evening. Everyone is welcome to come. Um, and uh, it's a powerful time. We pray for the church. We pray for um, the world. Actually, every Thursday we pray for an unreached people group around the world, people that basically don't have the gospel, and we pray for one of them every week. And so consider coming out on a Thursday evening at 6 o'clock. And if you want to sit there and observe, that's fine. Uh, if you feel nervous about praying, just observe what's going on. I also encourage you to follow the Spirit's leading. If the Spirit is telling you to start some prayer in your home or uh, with some neighbors or some other brothers and sisters here. Um, my wife got the idea, surely, um, surely she did, <laughs> um, a, a number of months ago to start an Adopt-A-Prayer movement. And she told me that there's over 20 schools now in Buncombe County that, are, that have specifically people praying for them. If you'd like to be a part of that, uh, I believe her email address is up there. Feel free to contact her as well. So the first powerful movement uh, of God uh, factor is powerful praying. The second is the power of preaching the gospel. There's no more powerful kick to the gut of Satan than to preach the gospel to the lost and to see them converted to Christ. <clears throat> the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving and the gospel brings light and life to those who are blinded and rescues them from his control. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul wrote in that passage we looked at, he said, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So the key word here is fearlessly. What did Paul ask for? To be able to preach the gospel fearlessly, with boldness. It should encourage us to know that the Apostle Paul asked for prayer for that. He, uh, he needed that at times. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, I came to you, to the Corinthian believers, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And the Lord responded, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 18, says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city, the city of Corinth. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So what is the greatest need? Yes, we do need training in how to uh, develop our personal testimony, how to share the gospel clearly. We need training in apologetics to maybe minister to people coming out of a Muslim background or out of uh, uh, paganism or whatever it might be. But the greatest need we have is for fearlessness, for boldness, 
I have a statement up here that I'd like you to look at as I read. When it comes to being bold in our faith, at some point, at some point, we have to cross the line of fear that holds us back. We must deepen our soul, be convinced that God is with us and will take care of us. He will not fail us or forsake us. And he will never stop doing good to us. Here's the key. And we must become convinced that the salvation of others and standing for the truth is more important than our own comfort, our own reputation, or even our own safety. Yeah? We can choose to be undercover Christians. We can choose to hide our faith and not really tell anybody what it means to know Christ. Many of you have lived that way your entire lives, but at what cost to your soul? I remember when I was with a crew, uh, we had a thing called Operation Sunshine, very very 1970s name. We um, went down to um, Daytona Beach, Florida. And I mean, there were... there were probably hundreds, maybe thousands of Campus Crusade students, college students, descended on Daytona Beach. I mean, it was like this invasion of the gospel. And we went on the beach um, to, to share the good news uh, of, of Jesus Christ. And, and we come back to our rooms and compare with each other. How many do you share the gospel with today? And how many, I mean, it was a little bit immature com- competition, all that kind of stuff. But I tell you what, there was a movement of the spirit of saying, we're just going to preach the gospel with everything that moves. I remember going up to a group of, of motorcycle gang dudes. I was pretty skinny in those days, you know. White, skinny guy going up to these guys and just said, we're here to tell you about Jesus. Do you want to listen? You know, and it was like the boldness that we had. You know, I'm not saying go out and be odd for God or something, but you know, um, as maybe we were. But uh, the whole thing is we crossed that line. We said, you know, it really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things what people think of us. What matters is this person has an opportunity to go to heaven and to get to know Jesus. If you've never crossed that line, maybe God's encouraging you to do that. Uh, It's so fun being in God's will and sharing the good news. I had an opportunity to lead a a high school kid to Christ. His name was Daniel. Uh, (laughs) uh, So I was discipling Daniel in sort of cross-cultural missions and stuff. We went to a Chinese restaurant and tried to share the gospel with the, the owner of it, and he yelled at us and said no and kicked us out. And So we started walking down the street, so well, that's interesting. All of a sudden, we heard these voices, uh, these Hispanic guys, Latino guys over there, hey, you white dudes. I said, Daniel, keep walking. Hey, you white dudes. I said, Daniel, maybe we better stop. I think we're the only white dudes around here. <laughs> so we stopped, and a group of six guys with knives surrounded us and said, there's been some white dudes messing with our sister. And I just said, listen, you know, I'm sorry about that, but I don't know your sister. I know I'm a white dude, but I don't know your sister. And these guys stood there. Well, some white dudes have been messing with our sister. 
I said, listen, my name's Rich, and this is Daniel. You know what Daniel means? Daniel means God is judge, and if you lay a hand on us, God will judge you. Immediately, the atmosphere changed, and these guys started saying, hey, my name is Carlos, and my, my name is you know, this, and they started shaking hands with us, and before we were done, we got to share the good news with these guys that had threatened us with knives. Cross the line, people. Take a step over the line. Say, I will not allow fear to hold me back anymore. Well, there's one more area of power uh, in advancing the gospel, and that's the power of perseverance in suffering. In the Ephesians 6 passage, the Apostle Paul called himself an ambassador in chains. And by the way, the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written by Paul when he was in jail because of his faith in Jesus. Now, it's very clear from Scripture that the persecution of believers, which happens all over the world, and those who have studied this said of all the millions of people that have lost their lives for Christ since Christ's time, 2,000 years, probably half of the martyrs uh, were killed in the 20th century. Um, and so the devil's behind that. And this passage of scripture you may be familiar with. I'd like you to follow it along with me, if you would, please. First um, Peter 5, 8 to 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him, on the Lord, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith. That's what Scott was talking about last week. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. You're not alone. If you're going through it because of your faith in Jesus, you're not alone. Your people, brothers and sisters around the world, are accomplishing it. They're standing firm. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, God will move in on your behalf to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We live in a world that is full of anti-God thinking and living. In fact, the Bible says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Count on it if you live godly in Christ Jesus. This means your faith is not private, but it's public. I want to share a, a final account of someone whose life challenges me, and hopefully will challenge you as well. You may be aware that at the great west door of Westminster Abbey. Um, there are 10 statues, statuettes really. Um, and when they were deciding who they wanted to put in those 10 places, uh, and it was actually unveiled in 1998, they decided to put statues of uh, those who had lost um, their lives for the faith during the 20th century. Um, and Martin Luther King Jr. is in there, by the way. And there's a uh, a man by the name of Maximilian Kolbe, see his picture up there, um, 
born in 1894, died in 1941. I, tell you, I want to tell you his story briefly. Amazing guy. In 1906, at the age of 12, Maximilian had a vision which shaped the rest of his life. In that vision, he was offered two crowns, one red, the other one white. This is what Maximilian said. The white one meant that I should persevere in purity, and the red one, that I should become a martyr. That is, to lose his faith, lose his life for his faith. I said that I would accept them both. Prior to the vision, Maximilian had wanted to be a soldier in the Polish army, but because of that, he changed his mind. Uh, he crossed the Austria-Hungary border uh, to join the Franciscan order as a 16-year-old high school kid. And he was ordained that year in 1910. He immediately began reaching out to everyone around him with a love of Jesus. And so a small group of friars joined him and they formed a monastery near Warsaw in Poland, which was used as their basis of evangelism. And he was kind of a, I don't know, on the cutting edge of technology for his day. They used print media, of course. They also used radio, which was fairly new. And he also wanted to build a uh, movie studio to film uh, films for the cause of Christ. So as a result of their efforts uh, and their evangelistic uh, activity, during the next 10 years, 1,000 people joined them there, both in Warsaw and at another monastery they had uh, founded in Nagasaki, Japan. So they were foreign missionaries as well. Well, at the beginning of World War II, Warsaw, as you know, was captured by the Nazis. Now, because Maximilian had a German father, he was offered a deal by the Nazis. So you sign this document, we'll give you certain benefits and privileges here, which others would not get. Uh, he refused to sign it. Instead, he and the few remaining friars who hadn't fled uh, from Poland provided shelter for Polish refugees and hid close to 2,000 Jewish people during the war. Eventually, the Nazis figured out what was going on. They closed the monastery and arrested the friars in February of 1941. Maximilian was imprisoned. There was an SS guard who saw his outfit, said, do you believe in Christ? And he said, I do. And so the SS guard beat him mercifully, asked him over and over again. Every time Maximilian said, yes, I do believe in Christ and kept being beaten. They tore off his friar's robe and put on uh, prison garb and he was shipped off to Auschwitz with 300 other prisoners. At that camp, hunger and hatred prevailed, but Maximilian opened his heart to others and began to speak freely of God's love to the other prisoners. When food would be brought in and all the lines formed and people struggled to try to get their bit of food, he would step back and let others get theirs, sometimes not getting any, but if he did get some, he would often give it and share it with others. Shortly after he arrived at Auschwitz, three guys escaped from there. And so the Nazis, kind-hearted souls that they were, decided to make 10 prisoners examples for the rest and put them in a starvation cell 
so that no one else would ever try to escape again. One of the guys was so distraught uh, being put in there, scared for losing his family, his wife, his kids, Maximilian heard his cry and said, I'll take his place, and he did. While he was in there, he immediately started uh, running services of prayer and worship there, ministering to the other nine as they were struggling from starvation and dehydration. After several weeks, only Maximilian and a couple other guys were alive, so the Germans had enough and decided to kill them. And so they injected Maximilian and his friends with carbolic acid. The report was that uh, with a prayer on his lips, Father Colby gave his left arm to the executioner. And when he was found later, he was found sitting against the back wall with his eyes open, his head dropping sideways, but his face calm and radiant. He died August 14th, 1941. A victim or a victor? Final scripture here, and then we'll pull this to a conclusion. The Apostle John writes between the war between Satan and the saints. Revelation chapter 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they did not prevail. And there was no longer any place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, coming full circle from Genesis 3, now to Revelation 12, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Now listen to this. This is the saints, children of God in victory, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, which cleanses us from all our sins. Because of the word of their testimony, they fearlessly shared the good news. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. Folks, such people are invincible. As we conclude today, and as we conclude this study on spiritual battle, there is an end coming where God will make all things right. Even those who have lost their lives for Christ will be vindicated. My challenge to you is, do you want to be an invincible Christian. Three things. To already be washed in the blood of the Lamb, follower of Jesus. Two, to fearlessly share your testimony with those who need it around you. And three, 
to not love your life even unto death. Now you may not be called to lose your life for your faith. We may not be called to die for Jesus, but we are called to live for him. If your heart is full right now, and you don't want to be a spectator anymore, you don't want to hide who you are. You want to have an impact. You want to have a a part in the kingdom of God expanding to the world. My life first became three and a half years ago, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to the whole world, to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Folks, let's join in on the kingdom plan to reach the world, and then Jesus comes back. How's that sound? Amen? If you're saying in your heart right now, and the worship team will come and we'll sing a final song. If your heart is saying, I want to be, by the grace of God, an invincible Christian, I'd like you to stand here. If that's what your heart is saying to you right now, no pressure, no compulsion, but you're saying, yes, Lord, I want my life to count for the kingdom of God. I want to pray for you, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father God, I want to thank you that you are calling an army. Lord, you raised up an army from bones, dry bones. Lord, you can raise up an army from living, active Christian folks. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, whatever you're calling them to do. Oh God, I pray that there would be a a movement of your spirit so powerful in their heart, whether it's in praying and preaching and persevering, standing firm in the faith, whatever it might be, whether it's here in Asheville or around the world. Oh God, would you send forth your people, Lord, so that the great commission of seeing every people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation come to know Jesus. Father, make us significant players in that for your glory and for the name of Jesus we pray.